Well, let me add my word of welcome to uh, Jill and the team and uh, say good morning to you. My name is Tony Diekman. I'm the site pastor here at Trinity Green Trails. In case you're new here today, I, a special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here. We're in a series we've titled Visions of Hope, where we're looking into the book of Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament, to see some really strange things, to see a really strange guy speaking for God in some really crazy ways to get the attention of his people so that they would turn and see the hope that he provides. And today we're going to continue that journey. Uh, before we do that, I'd ask if you would pray with me. And this morning as we pray, I want to lift up a special prayer, our prayers this morning for those who are suffering in Haiti, uh, the destruction of, of, of their homes and infrastructure, and for those in Afghanistan today that are fleeing that country and are struggling under the oppression of the Taliban, and we just want to lift them up in prayer as well. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we gather in the name of Jesus, and we come before you this morning, and we, we call you Lord, we call you Savior. And we, we seek out your wisdom, we seek out your hope this morning, and we admit that we are here because you called us. While we may not understand that, we trust in your word that you've called us and gathered us here this morning to hear your word, to be molded and shaped by you, to be molded and shaped by one another, the church, the body of Christ. But Father, as the body of Christ, we look around the world today and we see so much hurt and so much destruction and so much anger. And we know that you are the hope for this world. We know you are the hope not only for our lives, but for people around the world. And this morning, we lift up those people to you, specifically those in Afghanistan, those in a war-torn country that haven't known peace for decades, for centuries. Father, we say, come, Lord Jesus, into that country. We ask you for your protection of the women and the girls and the young boys and those in minority groups. Father, we ask for your protection. We ask for your protection over that underground church of Christians in Afghanistan that are seeking to make your name known, the peace of Christ that transcends everything. Father, we pray, come Jesus in Afghanistan, and we pray for the protection of the military troops and all of those who are trying to evacuate others and that you would make safe passage for them. Father, we also pray for the Taliban. We pray for those that, that do not know you. We pray that through your word, through your love, the love of Jesus, that they could come to see Jesus. Come, Jesus, we pray. And for those in Haiti, that country that just seems to never be able to get ahead, Father, we ask for continued provision and help from around the world as, as people are burying their dead and trying to uncover their dead and trying to rebuild. Father, we ask for your resources to come to bear. Father, we pray for those families who are searching for loved ones, for those that are doing the searching, and we pray for the healing of that country. We pray that you would bring resources to bear through your church and through whatever means necessary, because we know all good gifts come from you. And so we pray for those people around the world, and we pray here this morning that your word would predominate, that your word would be the word that we hear. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, our God and our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when my, 
when my kids were growing up, uh, our, our second son, our second child, Alex, boy, when he was like two or three years old, we noticed that he didn't speak too well. And, and he had a hard time articulating in a way that we could understand. There were really only two people in our lives that could understand anything he was saying. And that was his older sister, Catherine, because he would say something and we'd look to her and he, she would tell us what he said. For some reason, she could understand him. And then he had a friend, Sam, who lived up the street. And it was hysterical to watch the two of them get together because they would be sitting around the kitchen table playing and talking to one another, understanding exactly what each other, other was saying. And it was like we were watching a foreign language. Uh, and, uh, and they understood each other. But the most fascinating thing about their relationship was, and it was both for both of them, is that while they couldn't say, while Alex couldn't say Catherine, he could call her sis, his older sister, he could still name all of the dinosaurs. I kid you not. You'd show him cards, you'd show him pictures, Tyrannosaurus rex, Triceratops, Plesiosaurus. And you'd be like, like, how does he speak paleontologist and he can't speak English? It was fascinating to watch him. And so it's no surprise that when he grew up, this was his favorite movie, his favorite movie series. And it still is today. If he had a dream, it would be having a Jeep with this logo on the side of it. I swear to you. And, and this movie actually is one of my favorites. And I love the special effects. I love the things they do in the movie. I think it's, I th I think it's a fascinating movie, fascinating concept. But I love it for other reasons, because I love one character in the movie probably more than anybody else, and that's Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. And probably because of the quotes they give him to speak in the movie. And the first one is this. It's this. It says, your scientists were pre so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether or not they should. When they're sitting around talking about how they've created these dinosaurs, he's looking at them going, did you ever stop and think maybe you shouldn't do this? Like maybe this wasn't a good idea? You, you were so arrogant that you never considered whether or not you even should or not. And, and, it, and it came true, right? And he said, I hate being right later in the movie. And in one of the scenes, he's sitting there, and all of a sudden the power goes down, the dinosaurs come out, and he's like, oh, here we go, right? And this is one of my other favorite quotes. He says, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man, man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. And then Dr. Ellie, sitting there, played by Laura Dern, says, yeah, dinosaurs eat man, and women rule the world. <laughs> See, they never stopped, right? That was the thing. It's like they could. They had the technology to do it. I know it's a fictional movie, okay? But there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here. They had the technology to do this, but they never thought whether or not they should. They never considered the consequences. All they could see was a possibility. And all they could see was a possibility of a park with dinosaurs. No one ever stopped to think. There was a reason why dinosaurs weren't on the earth when man was here. Right? There was a reason. Dinosaurs eat men. They never stopped to consider that maybe they shouldn't. The same thing is true of our ancestors. Literal ancestors. The children of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, are faced with the same dilemma. Something they could, but maybe they shouldn't ask for. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is how it reads. It says, Samuel, who was leading the people, the children of Israel, is growing old, and his sons are not really following his lead. And so the elders get together and say, Hey, Samuel, 
your sons aren't going to cut it. We need somebody else to lead us. Give us a king just like the other nations. We want a king just like all the other people have around us. Because if we had a king just like everybody else had, well, then things would be really good in the land. And Samuel is really distraught. And so he goes before God and he, he says, they want us to give us a king to lead them. And then God says, well, listen to the people and all that they are saying. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so that's what he does. He goes back to the people and said, the Lord God is willing to give you what you want. But be careful what you ask for, because this is what's in store for you. And then he goes on to explain the king that they will serve and what he will become. And what he explains is he's going to use you, he's going to use the things you have, he's going to use your children to serve him, and then he's going to start taking from you your children, your things, your property, your land. Everything you own will become his and you will serve him. Be careful. Is this what you want? And what do you think they said? Yes, this is what we want. We want a king just like everybody else has. And so God says, give them what they want. And so that's what they did. And they got a king, Saul, followed by David, who was probably the best of the kings. And after that, a line of kings that were failures and some that were good, Nation splits into two, and what happens? About 450 years later, the king that God warned them about comes to Jerusalem and destroys them and takes them into captivity back in Babylon, taking everything they own, stripping the temple, making them slaves and servants, their children and everything, would serve Nebuchadnezzar. What they asked for they got. And God, as always, is faithful to his word. Now, they never considered Nebuchadnezzar, right? They never considered dinosaurs would get out of their pens and eat people. And they never considered there could be a king, and maybe kings aren't all they're cracked up to be. They never considered that. But do you think that changed them? No, it didn't change them. For the next nine years, we're told that they continue to rebel in the land. See, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes, lays siege to Israel, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, and takes most of the people, all the royalty, all the high-honored high people back to Babylon. He leaves the poorest in the land, but he puts a king in charge. And after seeing the northern kingdom decimated by the Assyrians, and after seeing southern kingdom captive to, to Babylon and carried away, you think they would have learned their lesson, right? No, no, no. They make Jurassic Park 2. They, they actually say, we know better. We can do it better ourselves. We've learned all these lessons. We're just going to do it better. But they didn't. They just kept rebelling, not against just Nebuchadnezzar, but against God and worshiping foreign gods and, and following after these foreign practices. And then it finally leaked into well, we don't want Nebuchadnezzar ruling us either. 
And so what do you think happens when the, when the most powerful nation in the world is, is, is being challenged by this puny little poor nation now? Well, he comes and he lays siege to Jerusalem. He comes and lays siege to, to, to Jerusalem, and, and he's getting ready to destroy it. And the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel in chapter 24, and this is what we read. It says, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So God has come to Ezekiel in Babylon and said, this very day, Nebuchadnezzar has laid siege against Jerusalem. Why? Because they're stubborn, hard-headed, just like their ancestors, and they can't learn. And he says, what's going to happen is they're going to be completely destroyed. There's not going to be anything left. It'll be a land of desolation. But at a time in the future, there's going to be a survivor, and he's going to run to Babylon. He's going to announce Jerusalem is destroyed. And that ends, chapter 24, ends the judgment of God against the people of Israel. And then the next, like, nine chapters take up the judgment of the lands that oppress the children of Israel, which brings us to chapter 33. All this is leading up to a place. Just trust me, it's getting somewhere. In chapter 33... The captive from Jerusalem arrives in Babylon and announces that Jerusalem has been destroyed, that it no longer exists. The temple, everything else has been raised. And the people are sad in Babylon. The captives in Babylon are sad. And, and they're coming and they're actually listening to Ezekiel. They're, they're wanting to hear his words. They're hurting, they're aching, and they're looking for hope. And they come to Ezekiel for answers. In fact, at the end of chapter 33, this is what is written. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that comes from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words. See, the people are distraught. They're in pain. And, and they've heard the words at the temple, the, their, their jewel of their heart has been destroyed. And they're coming to Ezekiel to hear words of hope. But this is how he continues. But they do not put those words into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. See, they're coming. Their hearts are heavy. They know that, 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 that God has the answer for them. But what do they do? They come and hear these words of hope. They come and hear that God has not forgotten them. And then they go away, like James says, and forget what they look like. And, and they go away, and they don't actually put into practice. They don't actually repent from their ways. They keep living the same way they were living, and they don't change their lives. They keep making the same mistake, even though they know they just keep following and chasing after their own dreams because they refuse to listen to God's word and actually repent and turn toward him and actually do what he says. So what do you think God does in response? That's where we end chapter 34. Chapter 34 that you heard read part of earlier is God now coming on the scene, and he says to them through the prophet Ezekiel, 
I have given them what they wanted. Now I'm going to give them what they need. I've given them what they've wanted, and you've seen how that's turned out. Now I will give them what they need. But before he gets there, he does something very interesting. Up until this point, he's been pressing judgment upon the people of Israel, Israel being the southern kingdom, as he calls them. But now he turns to the shepherds, to the leaders, and who does he condemn? The kings. Who are the shepherds of, of Judah and Israel? The kings. They were the shepherds that God put in charge of his flock. And if you remember those words that were read at the beginning of 34, he's chastising the shepherds. He's chastising the leaders. He's chastising the kings who have sought after their own good, not after the good of his people, not after the good of his flock. In fact, when the sheep were scattered, when the northern kingdom was scattered, did the southern kingdom bother to try and bring them back? No. The southern king had no interest in those sheep. All he was interested in was himself and his own property and his own land. Forget the people halfway across the world. I'm more concerned about here. And God is pronouncing judgment on those shepherds for only being concerned about themselves and abandoning his sheep and actually saying devouring his sheep for their own good. It's a stern warning to the leadership of his people. Not only is he pronouncing judgment upon the people for their actions, now he's pronouncing judgment on the people for the, act, uh, the leaders for their actions and how they led his sheep astray. But then God turns and says, but now I'm going to give them what they need. They wanted a king, now I'm going to give them a shepherd. I will be their shepherd. I, once again, will be their king. And I will lead them. He doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. And that's him leading us, him shepherding us, him calling us from the nations, him calling his people back to himself from all the nations. God himself being the king, the shepherd that he had always wanted to be, but they didn't want him to be. Now God says, a time is going to come where I myself will shepherd my people. And who is it that will shepherd my people? He says it will be King David. Remember that last part of the text? It says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and, I'm, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. David has been dead for 400 years. So who is he talking about? Some would say, well, David's going to come back to life and lead his people. But that would be misunderstanding the text. In fact, we're given a hint. We're given a hint all throughout Scripture that this Messiah, this shepherd, will come in the line of David. And we see that at the very first gospel, in the opening line of the very first gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is saying, Jesus is the long-awaited shepherd, David, who will shepherd his flock. 
is Jesus. And the disciple John tells us even more clear in his gospel in John chapter 10, where Jesus stands before the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people of that day. He stands before the Pharisees and he says this, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter by the sheep pen of the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. He says, I am the good shepherd, the shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep, the hired hand, calling the Pharisees the hired hand. They're not the shepherd, and and they don't own the sheep, right? So when he sees the wolf coming, when the Pharisees see the wolf, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks and the flock scatters and the man runs away because he's the hired hand and cares nothing about the sheep. Does that kind of echo in your ears from what Ezekiel said about the leaders, the shepherds of Israel? You see Jesus almost word for word saying exactly what was said through the prophet. And then he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I laid down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. We hear over and over again accusations if you'll search, or maybe you've talked to people, and maybe you've heard it. Jesus never claimed to be God. That was an invention later on by his disciples. Later on, they made him up to this deity. That was never something his disciples taught, never something Jesus taught. He was a good man, but he never claimed to be God. My question is, how can you say that after reading both these texts this morning? Jesus very clearly is standing before the Pharisees and before everyone who will listen and say, I am the good shepherd. I am the shepherd that Ezekiel was prophesying about. I myself am shepherding my people. Who is he claiming to be? But God himself. And we know that because later in John chapter 10, they picked up stones to kill him because he says, he says, not because you've done anything wrong, because you're claiming to be God. Quite literally, the Jews understood what he was saying. And now today, we know what he was saying. Jesus was claiming to be the shepherd that God promised that would come and shepherd his people and lead his people and not only lead his people, but lay down his life for his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the one that is calling sheep to himself. Not just sheep from his sheep pen, not just from the Jewish people, but from the nations, from the Gentiles. And did you see in John 10 who those sheep are? Did you catch that? This is what he says. Again, let me read this to you. He says, I have sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. How does he identify his sheep? Those who actually listen to him. And that word listen there isn't just hear. It's actually hearing his words and putting them into practice. Actually doing what the shepherd teaches. Differentiating them from 
the people who came to Ezekiel to hear God's word, rejoicing in God's word, but then walking away and never doing what God asked them to do. Jesus says, no, not, not with my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they actually listen and do what it is I command them to do. And not just from the Jewish people, but anywhere. Everyone is welcome to come and follow. Christianity is the most inclusive of all the world religions because its offer stands free to everyone who will come and be shepherded by the one shepherd who laid down his life. Not for his sake, but for the sake of the sheep. And he calls us to follow him and actually put his words into practice. In fact, in Matthew, at the Sermon on the Mount, he concludes it this way. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. It had its foundations on Jesus. But, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a mighty crash. Everyone who hears these words of mine and still clamors for a king, God will give you what you want. He desires to give you what you need, and that's why he sent Jesus into the world was to be exactly what you need. And what he desires for us is to actually us to follow him and to actually put his words into practice. Not so that we could be his sheep, because we are his sheep. He has called us. But we are like our ancestors. We're rebellious. And, and we seek after our own kingdoms. But here's one thing I want you to understand. He will give us, again, what we've said, what we want. Look at, the, look at the story of Jurassic Park, right? Dinosaurs eat people. So what should we do? We should get rid of the dinosaurs. But what do we do? We don't get rid of dinosaurs. We just keep coming back to the island, thinking that we can fix it. Now, I know it's fictional, okay? But there's a lesson. I mean, because if you can keep making movies... People keep coming. Why? Because they love to see the crash. But it's no fun when it's real life. It is really no fun when it's real life. And they're not stopping. Hey, there's another one coming next year. We can tame dinosaurs. Just watch. We need to learn the lesson that we're being taught throughout the scriptures that we will keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again until we accept, until we follow the shepherd that God has given us. We will still be subject to being eaten by the dinosaurs of our own making until we accept the shepherd that God has provided us. Jesus says in John 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that they can have life and have it to the full. Jesus is describing a life that you can have, that he desires for you to live. And it's his life. 
It's looking, living, and loving like Jesus. And in that life is abundance. In that life is a life that you desire in your heart, but you think you can reach it by yourself. But it's a life that only Jesus can give. And it's a life of following him. Now, I want you to hear something real clear here right now. I want you to hear. Did you hear what Jesus says? He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come so that they could have life and have it to the full. Jesus is saying there are two voices in this world. See, we think there are all these other voices and then there's Jesus. There are two voices in this world. There's Jesus and there's everything else. There's Jesus and there's everything else. There's no in-between. So when we seek to follow after our own hearts, when we seek to set up kingdoms of our own, when we seek to be our own king, we're not listening to Jesus. You need to be honest with ourselves this morning. We're not listening to Jesus. We're listening to the thief. Because the thief's whole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, to lead you to a destruction, to lead you into a life of hell here on earth. That's his objective. And if at all possible, to get you to jump out of God's hands, to get you to leave his protection. And he'll entice you any way possible. But don't kid yourself that there's an in-between voice between God and everything else, because there isn't. There are two voices. There are two voices. And this morning, Jesus is saying, follow me, because I've laid down my life for you. I love you, and I want you to experience this abundant life that I have for you. And so the true shepherd this morning is calling us. And he's saying, my sheep, they'll follow me. They'll follow me. They'll listen to my voice, and they'll follow me. Now, he's not of of the illusion that we're going to do so perfectly. He knows (laughs) we're human, and we're sinful still. That's okay. Every day, Jesus is there. Every minute, Jesus is there holding out his hand and saying, follow me. Turn from this life and follow me. Turn from this way and follow me. And the question is, will you follow him? Will you lay down your life today and follow him? The one who doesn't care for himself, but he cares for you, who gave his life for you, so that you could actually choose to follow him. And be empowered to follow him. The one who is the good shepherd is calling you today, is beckoning all of us today to follow him. King David, from the past, is calling to us today from the Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. David saying, taste and see. Trust in his word. Follow him. Do what he asks you to do. Taste and see, experience that he's true, that he's good. And you won't be disappointed. You will be blessed when you take refuge in him, in his ways for your life. Jesus' call today is, come, follow me. I am the good shepherd. In me there is hope not just for you, but for the world. Today, Jesus says, come, taste, and see.